Welcome to the Process Podcast. This, uh, Nate, you're here for a um, an interesting and important one. Mm. It's probably the last one under the Process Podcast name. We're going to switch up the name okay. after this. We're also taking a little hiatus. So be good, is what I'm saying. I'll do be my best. Be excellent. I'll, I will. Oh, today, yeah, yeah. I plan on it. I'm. You can be terrible. No. It's fine. No, I'm not going to be terrible. Okay. I will good. not be terrible. No. Well, I can't. You be the judge. How's uh how's your week been? Scale of one to nine. Interested in the scale. Okay. Real quick. Why not a 10? Is it just, it's kind of like, we hear that too much. One to 10 is easy to just shortcut your way through and say, I'm a seven. Mm. In the same way that if somebody you asks really you, think about it, how you're doing, you'll be like, I'm fine. Yeah. But if I say like a scale from one to 52, yeah. you're like, right. Ooh. Whoa, what? Scale so one, to one to nine. nine. Yeah. One to nine. I how would say, you? I would say I'm a six. All right. So right in that middle zone. Yeah. I mean, f- Physically, I feel good. Okay, good. Which I think is important. Sure. You know, like you may have some good ideas and things going decently in your life, but you feel like crap for whatever reason. It's not, it's not a great week. Right. But so physically, I feel pretty good. Work is okay. Sure. Yeah, it's okay. Some, some of the similar challenges we spoke with mm-hmm. before, similar frustrations. To catch people up, Nate, in case this is your first time listening, is currently on the radio. Not currently as we're recording. <laughs> He's on a podcast right now, but he is a... Depends what time you're listening. That's right. He's a radio guy. Yes. And, uh, and his uh, battles right now, if, if you'll allow me to summarize, are you're good at your job. Mm, they're sometimes not supported as well as you would like by maybe co-hosts or the station, you would like to advance in this career, but there are always going to be people ahead of you in line. Yeah. Right. Like the people who've been there longer or just who have more Denver clout than you do, for example, does that sum it up pretty well? Yeah, I guess so. You know, I, I, I was lucky enough to have gotten here to Denver in 2003 um, and played for the Denver Broncos uh, just a couple years removed from back-to-back championships, Super Bowl championships, like the the pinnacle of success two years in a row in one of the most competitive sports leagues in the world. And Mike Shanahan, who was a head coach and really just the organizational manager, had it so dialed in the way he ran that operation. It taught me a lot about leadership. It taught me a lot about motivating the troops and how to kind of create the balance um, from everybody that works under you to strive, you know, create a standard of excellence that you strive for every day and that nothing other than that would be acceptable. Um, But it's also treating everyone the same who works for you. You don't play favorites. You don't give special privileges to this guy when this guy over here is busting his ass and then you just forget about him. He's an afterthought. No, if you, uphold the standard of excellence, then you all get the same treatment. And that's not what I get now. Mm. That's not the environment that I'm in. And I'm sure a lot of people listening work in a similar environment where the standard of excellence is not applied the same to everyone. And some people get special treatment or extra chances or are able to slack off or not prepare or be unprofessional. And it doesn't, there's no consequences for that. And the, the, the troop morale suffers because of it. You know, everyone starts to feel not great about coming into work. If you feel like the the leadership isn't consistently treating everybody based on their merits and what they bring on a day-to-day basis. So I will say real quick, I was once your employee, Paul, you were my boss. That's true. And you operated the same way as Mike Shanahan. Mm, Thank you. You treated your, you, you you had a high standard of excellence. You wanted things done a particular way. Mm. I mean, everyone, anyone who knows Paul Shirley knows that (laughs) there are certain things that have to be done a certain way. Right. Uh, 
Scott was your roommate once, mm-hmm. and he told me about the the preferences you had for your sponges. Mm. You couldn't put a sponge. Tell me about your sponge preference, Paul. <laughs> what was I think probably so? Scott Schaefer, who's also a guest on the podcast, it's very incestuous group here. Was my roommate two separate occasions in Los Angeles? He left for a while and then he came back. And uh, I do think that I what I I was <laughs> I often think of your sponge rule persnickety when- about was. Love a great, those blue sponges yep. with the, the one side that's yep. kind of rough yep. and the other side that's kind of soft, right? Yeah. Yep. Well, they're kind of expensive, right? They're like a <laughs> right. dollar each. And it just, I don't, I don't like to be wasteful right. when it comes to, especially just throwing stuff away. Right. Right. I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily call myself an environmentalist, but I was raised by parents who taught us like, don't waste stuff because we don't want to put it in the ground. Mm. So it bothers me when people don't think about like the long-termism of things they use. So like with those sponges, the thing I had a discussion with Scott about was, can you just squeeze out the sponge when you're done using it so that it can dry and mm. not get all moldy? Mm-hmm. Cause then we can keep it around for, you know, a few extra weeks as yep. opposed to having to throw it away. Yep. And he had a hard time doing that. Yeah. Cause he comes from a different background. He's a bit of a, a rich city kid. So oh, is he? yeah. So he, they were very like, just throw stuff away. Yeah. Family. Someone will take care of it. Yeah. We yeah. were more, we got to recycle, we got to compost all of those things. Well, well before that became cool. Yeah. But what I was trying to say was that <laughs> although, and that was my digression, not yours, but what I was trying to say is that, you know, you, you're very particular about the things you wanted done, but you also treated your employees well and you treated them all the same and you re- rewarded them and tried to take care of them and make them feel appreciated. Mm. You asked a lot of them, but all, you also gave. And um, I wish I saw more of that mm. on a daily basis. So, right. yeah, I do think that uh, you s- see that in well-run sports franchises as something that's more apparent because sports are such a meritocracy where it's clear whether you're going to win or lose. One of the weird truths I think about adult life is that there are a lot of businesses that can get away with mediocrity because they were first into the market Mm. or because they've just been around for a long time. And you wonder like, well, I actually always assume that business must be so well run. And then you get into it and you're like, Oh no, they were just here first. <laughs> right. And they've been coasting on those fumes for a really long time. And people are just used to using that product. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if we look at like this shitty Epson printer, that's sitting here in this room with us, right. It is terrible, but <laughs> Epson was one of the first into the business, I guess. So they just get to stay in business. I love that you just said shitty. It made me think, where's the dump button? No, you don't have to fucking no, you do can, that, man. You can let loose. Yeah. You can bash on Epson all you want because yeah. they are not going to be sponsoring this podcast. Last time you were here was uh, a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. You made some uh, some resolutions um, and, uh, and we want to talk about those real quick. I also want to hear about some wins and losses, mm. some sort of systems-based, habits-based wins and losses from... Yep these last six weeks or so. Yeah. Yeah. So last time you were here, you established that, uh, you wanted to write for 45 minutes twice a week. You, yep. you had figured out that Wednesdays were bad for this. Yeah. Tuesdays and Thursdays were good yep. that you could do it at a place called Stella's <laughs> and that you were going to do it at 11 AM. So mm. scale of one to nine. How did you do? You know, I would say I did like a seven. Oh yeah. I was at right. Stella's yesterday at 11 AM. Okay. And then I had, and I was working on an article I've been working on forever and just kind of revisiting here and there. 
And then I accidentally deleted something that I needed. And I was like, how do I retrieve a deleted document? And so I'm going through Google trying to do that. Meanwhile, this chick who decides to have a full decibel Zoom meeting. Oh, love that. In, in, and not just like, you know, I'm in a public space, so I'm going to do the Zoom meeting a little bit. No, like, and she's an economist and she wants to talk really fast about this. Oh, and this, I'm used to that. Oh, we, we crunch those numbers all the time. That's normal for us economists. And, and I started having this like really, because it, that was one thing. The fact that I just lost this file, with, which had some really, I thought, good stuff on it was another. And I just like huffed and puffed, closed the laptop and left. Ah. That was a, I was in there for about 45 minutes, though, and okay. I actually got some work done. All right. um, I will say that, like, so over the last couple of months has been uh, challenging for me, hard for me. My father passed away last month. Mm. Prior to that, his health started deteriorating. So I was going home every weekend to help because my father was 94. My mom's 15 years younger than him. She'd been taking care of him, but he start, he was in a state where he couldn't really even stand up. And so he needed help standing up. She wasn't bit strong enough to do that. So my two other brothers, we were kind of rotating, going home and being there. So face confronting my father's mortality and watching him go essentially has been what's been in my mind the last couple months. That said, I've always tried to write during those times because it helps me just feel better to get those things out. So I've, I've written quite a lot about my dad, just even in the month leading up to when he passed, because I could feel it coming and he could too. He was basically saying it, it this is almost over. And, you know, I want you guys to be okay with it as hard as it's going to be, but it's natural. I'm, I'm essentially, I'm ready. You know, he was ready, but we weren't, of course, like it's, it's, it's weird. Like he was 94. And when I tell people that they're like, Oh, cool. No big deal. Like great life. Like bon voyage, man. Awesome. And that's true for him, you know, but for everyone else, like for those who love someone, it's, you never have enough time and, and you're never really ready to say goodbye. You don't know what that means. You can have those hard conversations, which he did with all of his kids. I mean, he made a point to sit us all down when we were there and tell us, try to try to make us feel better about what was happening, but still you're not really prepared for what it's going to feel like. You know, when you walk into that house and he's not there and he's not coming back and his chair he sits in all the time is not going to, he's not going to ever be there again. So these are some of the things I've been confronting and, and trying to write about. And I, and it's been very therapeutic for me. So although I haven't like written anything that's like anyone's read or that I have a plan for, I've been writing a lot and it's helping my mind. It's helping me process things and help me understand more about my dad. And it's weird. Like this experience that I've had losing my dad, when your father's alive, he's, he's just, he's your dad. That's my dad. When he dies, you see that he's a man and he had this journey of life and you're just a part of it, but you see his life in totality, his journey, the decisions he made, the mistakes he made, his triumphs. Maybe he's born in 29. He fought in Korea. He taught school for 40 years. Like this man had a, a quite a life. And now I can, like, like I, when I look at his picture, it's a different guy than he was when he was here and he was just my dad. So these are some of the revelations I'm having about it. And I'd like to write about my dad. I want to write a book about my dad, but also like, what does that mean? You know, what does it look like? I think for me, some of the things I've taken from his death are that, you know, a great man probably dies every single minute in this country. And if, unless we 
embody those virtues, those things about him that were great, they're going to die with him. Mm. And, and my dad loved this country. He was a U.S. history teacher, fought in the Korean War. There was not a, a single historic figure in this country from any president's cabinet that he didn't under, know who his name and this historian. And he still, he believed in this country, you know? And, and so how am I going to embody that? Cause he's gone now. And, and so I got to teach it to my kid and I got to embody the things that were important to him that I valued and respected. So these are just things I've been thinking about. Well, first of all, it is, uh, as you mentioned, much harder, I'm sure than people know, right. To even with him being 94 years old, I think that was an important point you made that people assume, well, he's 94, so therefore it must hurt less or whatever. So I'm sure that is quite the challenge. It's not necessarily uh, unique, but from my perspective, a little bit interesting that you have recently lost your father, but a few, only a few years after having your first child, right? And so therefore you were talking a lot about fatherhood. I think that's really on your mind right now of like, how do I transfer this information or this spirit from my father to my son, which I think is, is um, profound and interesting and probably helpful in what you're writing about, right? Like who am I writing this for? In some ways, maybe you're writing it for your son. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So my dad was 50 when I was born. Mm. He, he was always the old dad. Um, and so there was a question growing up. Is he going to be around when I graduate high school? Is he going to be around when I graduate college? Is he going to see any career I have? Is he going to watch me get married? Is he going to see me have a kid? And he got to see all those things. But he, but my son never really knew him very well. You know, like my son was born a couple months before COVID hit and then COVID hit and, you know, everyone's isolating and we're living in LA and we decided to move to Denver to take advantage of the radio job that I'm <laughs> complaining about. Um, but I knew when that happened that it was going to limit my opportunities to hang out with my aging dad. He was 91 at that point. I mean, he's been having these thoughts forever. Like how long am I supposed to be around? So I knew that that was going to limit their ability to get to know each other. But he was encouraging me to do it. Like uh, as a, as a parent would go live your life. Don't, don't move back here. Cause you want to be close to the 90 year old. Mm-hmm. You have to go for your opportunities, you know, but that's the one thing that, that my son is never really going to know my dad, but my dad's father died when he was 15 in 1944. As the World War II was finishing up, my dad was the oldest of six boys and had an older sister himself. So my dad became the man of the house at 15 in 1944, like a single mother raising seven kids, you know, like I, I, I didn't never knew my grandpa, but my dad told me a lot about him. I learned a lot about him. And clearly the values that were present in my dad were taught to him by his dad, who was a Scottish immigrant, came over here in his twenties alone and, and met a lady and. And they got married. So, mm. um, so well, I, yeah, I do think that um, as we, of course, age, we become so much more interested in the breadth of history, right? Like we start to understand how much longer it is. You articulated that in the way that you're now able to see your father as a whole person and not just the entity that is your dad. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I, I, I would say that one of the struggles we're having maybe culturally is that we're so focused on the here and now we tend to forget about all that came before, right? We, we, we think that we can redo the culture that we can redo some of these methodologies. I was thinking in writing today actually about 
the way that we've changed uh, food consumption, uh, it was one way for organisms, in fact, for like a, several billion years, and then for our species for several million years. And then the last 80 years, we've been like, well, what if we tried a different way? <laughs> what if we combine all of these chemicals and process this food in a strange yeah. way? Well, like, of course, there's going to be some problems. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things you're talking about is this idea of what is a cultural legacy, even within your own family and, and how you want to pass that along. I think one thing that comes out of this for me is this idea that we need to, and there's so much value in writing as a way to organize our own thoughts. So you're talking about like this ability to synthesize all of the stuff that you're going through, put it onto the page. Do you think everybody needs to do that? Or is that just unique to some of us? I think everyone could benefit from it. Not everyone has the impulse. You know, for me, it, it is an impulse. I feel it building and I got to do it. You know, mm -hmm. I got to write it. And, and then I feel really good afterwards. Mm -hmm. But for me, this, this, this started when I was 19 years old and a friend of mine committed suicide. And my mom, this was a, the, the summer after my freshman year of college. It was a childhood friend who lived down the street. And we were all blindsided by it, completely surprised by it. Um, we were all hanging out the night before. In fact, we were all playing cards at, at my parents' house until five in the morning. And he had a plan. I mean, he had, a, and we all said goodbye and he said goodbye and he went and did it. Wow. Completely sober, had been sober for months. That's another story, but it was devastating. And, and my mom brought me in a blank journal. And said, and I'm like, what is this? She said, just write. And I said, what? She said, it doesn't matter. Mm. Just, just write. And that was to me, the start of my writing life. Like, mm -hmm. and, and I don't say career because I didn't get paid till later, but at that moment, like my mind, my heart, like it all became married into this output. And, and, and I started writing and it just released something in me and it felt really, really good. And it did. It arranged my thoughts and and let me understand what I'm actually thinking about something. You don't know what you feel about something sometimes until you start writing. You're like, oh, oh, I that's what I think about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And so I kind of became, it just kind of became my sidekick, you know, having a journal. I filled up a lot of journals in my late teens, early 20s, even into, you know, the age of 30. I was keeping an actual journal. And then the computer came along and the laptop. And then I started actually writing, you know, articles and books and whatnot. And then it became the laptop and I had a file in there that I would basically it is my journal. Mm. But, um, I think it's been the, the, the benefits that it's done to me are, are immeasurable. And I think anybody could, could gain similar, you know, outcome from that. Why is it that we don't teach writing like your mom taught you writing? Because she taught you how to write in a very hands-off way. Yeah. So, what is it? What is our, why are we compelled to try to control the way kids write? Cause I had a sort of similar journey in writing in that pretty much hated it all through school because it was always book reports <laughs> and like answer these essay questions and you want to put a, no, no offense, but you want to put a gun in your mouth. That's a tasteless joke based on what you just said. <laughs> about your friend killing himself. He um, did not use a gun. Okay. Sorry. 
it is frustrating. I, I go back and forth because one thing I see, people know that I write books. They know that I ran a writing space. So sometimes they think that the process here in Denver is a writing space. And I'm like, no, there's other things. But I do think there's value in people connecting to their ability to write and figuring out how it's fun, regardless of whether it's going to be at all a profession. I think there's also this confusion around, well, if I write, I should get paid for it. Mm. And that doesn't happen very often. No. So at, at, I, at least not at first. I mean, yeah, you got to so, write a lot. So back to the original question, why do we, why are we so bad at teaching people how to write? I guess because everything has to have a point to it or an outcome or an endpoint, or, you know, your assignment is finished. You know, you got an A or you got a D or whatever it is. Is There's never kind of the, the artistic jazzy, sort of attempt at it like what essentially what my mom did which was doesn't matter doesn't matter what you write just just try it you know um and i think that open-endedness may be scary to people on both ends of it the both the teacher and the and the pupil mm. a lot of pupils might or students might get scared away from that idea or, or freeze up clam up not know what to write and then a lot of teachers you know may not feel comfortable giving that much freedom to someone um, because they feel they have to lead them somewhere or steer them to some direction where they can feel accomplished. But I just think like learning to express what's happening inside of you, that's, that's a skill that you get to use everywhere. And if you're doing it just for yourself with, with writing, it sharpens that. So then you go into a conversation with your wife about a prickly subject. Well, your ability to do that alone with a journal is going to allow you to com- communicate better, better with her about something that's hard to talk about, or even, you know, the stuff going on with my dad, you know, like my ability to talk about it right now is based on the things I wrote about him in the last couple months is based on that journal that my mom gave me 25 years ago. So I think it just sharpens your acuity and your ability to talk about your feelings. Mm-hmm. which can be dangerous too. You know, mm-hmm. like there's this thing, this is kind of steering off a little bit, but it's really in vogue to speak your truth. Mm-hmm. Be careful speaking your truth, you know? And in fact, I might tell you to keep your truth to yourself, right? Where it's safe, mm-hmm. where there aren't going to be people who weaponize it or take advantage of you for it. Now you're going to get celebrated for your truth by some people over here, but then you're also going to create enemies in an opposition over mm. here. And so you got to be careful when you speak your truth. Yeah. And I think that comes back to our sometimes mistaken impression of the value of writing because people do see, Oh, that person got famous or got money because they wrote something that was uh, enjoyed by the masses. Right. And they forget that that's not really the point of the writing. Right. It's easy to get those things perverted in our heads. In your mind, what is the point of the writing? I think it's like you said, it helps us organize our thoughts. And then if there is a subsequent step where it helps other people organize their thoughts because they can relate to you, then that's a secondary win. But the first win has to come from that internal victory of, I now better understand how I feel. And I am, as you said, better equipped to explain that to somebody else. So the as, as you pointed out, the ability to put it on the page leads to you being able to say things. I, like I sometimes wonder about some of the writing I do when it comes to books, because let's say only 200 people read it. Where is that value? Except that a lot of times 
the value comes because I wrote it in a book. I have organized it. I've had to think so hard about like the sequence of how to explain this thing to people that then I'm so much better at explaining it in person or in a speech or on a podcast or whatever it might be that it has a long-term value that may not be so apparent in the six months after I write the piece or the year after. We feel the same about a lot of things as we always have. And so when we try to write about things, we've always felt the first time you write about it, it's a bit clunky. You keep writing about these same feelings, you really pare it down and become very um, sharp with the way you try to say the same thing. Like mm-hmm. it, it makes you more effective at saying some of the same things you've been saying. Right. Like a lot of the stuff you're doing here is stuff you've been preaching all along. Right. You're just finding better ways to say it, right? Yeah, always. I mean, and, and it is, I think, exciting how you can make these connections even as you age, right? You might think, well, why didn't I just think of that 10 years ago? The answer is you had to go through those 10 yeah. years to get to this point where you can now express it more succinctly or, or more um, effectively. I think about that a lot these days, even when we're doing a podcast, I might think, God, I wish I could have said that better. Well, I couldn't then. Right. I might be able to right. in two years, right. but I don't get to two years from now without right. today. And as far as like the radio goes for me, like, you know, you have a lot of people kind of sometimes saying the same stuff. Mm. Sometimes someone will say something first and then other people will pick it up and say it better. So the, the first person to say something doesn't always say it best. Mm-hmm. In fact, the first person to say something says it a little sloppy. It doesn't come out perfect, but that's the spark or that's the seed. And then, oh, some people take from it and it turns into this thing, right? Yeah. So sometimes you just got to say the thing you're thinking, mm-hmm. even though it's not said perfectly. Right. You yeah. Know? And I think there's um, this ties back actually to part of what's beautiful about writing and therefore communication is that that's what makes us human, right? That we are able to do this thing. Another thing that makes us human is connection. And it's interesting how, when you get in a group of people, especially a group of friends and you're like riffing on a joke or just an idea and it gets better and better as you go, right? You're like, Oh wow. We like, we found the real, the funny punchline actually took a while to get to, but we couldn't have gotten there on our own. Right. We had to bounce it back and forth. And I think people have talked about this a lot in the world of writing. The debate between do I share my ideas or will someone steal them? Right. right? Which is a dumb fear, <laughs> as it turns out, because your ideas aren't that great. They're not going to ever get great until you start bouncing them off of other people. And if you, for some reason, were able to come up with the perfect idea that someone stole, that's okay. Cause you'll come up with more ideas all yep. the time. Yeah. It took me a while to understand that actually. Cause I would think I would get really Protective. possessive. Yep. Yeah. Thinking like, well, this is the only good idea I have. Well, shit, I'm going to have too many ideas in fact. And if somebody else wants to do it, like right. have at it. It's the, it's the implementation of the idea. Yeah, that's the hard part. Yeah. It's real hard to write that screenplay as it turns out. Not just, it's not hard to have the idea. It feels like to me, your big loss was an obvious one from these last six weeks or so, but a potential win has been that it has maybe created this wellspring of emotion that then has inspired you to write more, to think more about the way that you're living. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just going through my dad's stuff. So my dad was, like I told you, a U.S. history teacher, but he was also a lover of, of poetry and literature. And from a, your young age, 
he was trying to sort of, he wouldn't push it on me because he knew I was like the, the, the physical athlete kid who would rather be outside, but he was introducing poetry and ideas of literature to me and, and to my brother. And we just had it in our house and going through, like, I got a book of sketches and poems by E.B. White, a poet my dad really liked, but just going through his books and taking some of his books and bringing them back. Like I'm inspired by how much he loved writing. He wasn't a writer. If he would have tried, he could have been. And he saw himself in college as possibly a newspaper man. He became a teacher instead, Mm. but he was a lifelong lover of words and poetry. He had a poem memorized for any moment and and it was anything could spark it still to, to his last breath. You know, a couple of months ago when he was, in and out of the hospital and he was kind of in a twilight at the hospital. And this is something that I had seen my dad do three or four years prior. He was kind of in a haze after a procedure. Um, but he was just reciting A.E. Houseman, Terrence, this is stupid stuff. I don't know if you know that poem. You should read it. It's a, it's a very long poem and he's got it all in there. I mean, he mm. knows the like the, this guy committed so many poems and quips and sonnets and lyrics to his memory that's inspired me over the last couple of weeks going through his stuff and now having his books in my possession. So it makes me want to quit radio and go back to being a writer again. Oh really? Yeah. Because you know what's cool about being a writer? You fucking wake up and you're just trying to write. Mm. That's your goal. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm going to go buy a newspaper and sit there with a coffee and read the newspaper and just think and let something come to me. Mm. Let myself be visited by thoughts and inspiration and then get into it. Now I know for you, you're like, that's not part of the process. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> it's not part I of the structure, but, but for me, I've ha- I've been ch- challenged to do both things, be the radio guy. Right. And also the writer, because they're very, very different. Like I got, I have a good friend of mine who's in media in town. He's been doing it forever. He's like, he was cautioning me when I was entering radio here. He's like, man, Nate, radio made me an asshole. It mm. makes you an asshole because you have to turn it up. Like you have to t- dial up your personality and you have to have uh, declarative takes and you have to con- confront the, you know, and have confrontational conversations and be, Hey, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, come on. You know, that kind of stuff is antithetical to me, to what sitting quietly and writing is about. Mm-hmm. But my father was not, uh, extrovert. He was an introvert. He was not the one who was going to be the spaz like like his son was. So I've been inspired by his by his humbleness, by his his mind, by his approach to words, to literature. Uh, he was always like in awe of the power and beauty of words. Even though he taught the Constitution, he also taught poetry at the same time. You know, would give poems to. So I just I just um, am inspired by that that duality. Well. Uh- one thing I will push back on is it is part of the process, right? To be whatever it is that you're pursuing, whether it's writing a book, starting a business, it's taking in as much great information as you can, right? So that you can then pick out the things that are going to be valuable to you. And as we said earlier, build on or iterate from people who are much smarter or more experienced than you are. Right. Like I've been really fascinated by how helpful it's been for me to crank up the amount I've been reading in the last year or two. Um, new to Denver, LA was a city where I felt like I was out doing a lot and like I was kind of now in output mode. Like I had absorbed a lot of information and now I was helping people like buy 
setting up events and running a thing. It felt like when I got to Denver, I needed to hunker down and consume a lot of information, especially around how do I take the methodology that we developed for writers in LA and expand that now to all knowledge workers, really. And it is remarkable to me how reading books and consuming literature and magazines and whatever else enables you then to harvest so readily because it's like a weird secret weapon now because people don't read books as much as they used to. I mean, that's not to say people don't read books because people actually do read a lot, but they don't read as intensely Mm. as you might think. And so if you can come up with ways to read the people that you know are going to be nourishing it's just fascinating how much it becomes like a superpower. And you're able to say like, Oh, I read this in this book recently. And then it's also, what's cool about that is you're not saying this is my opinion. I'm you're able to say, here's what this really smart person said. Right. Let's talk about it. As opposed to what I see in the world right now is a lot of people saying, well, here's how I feel about this. And I'm like, Oh, that's hard to have an argument because I can't argue with how you feel. Right now we can argue with like what this person wrote a 400 page book around. Yeah. Right. Like that's a much more interesting argument to me. Yeah. My brother's wife um, gave to my dad a couple of years ago, this, this kind of WordPress um, gift where he had to write a, a chapter a week. Mm. And at the end of the year, they, they bundle it and put the book together. Mm. So my dad actually wrote a book a couple of years ago, oh. essentially about his life. Oh, right. So on. it's, it's pretty cool going through that, but he, but he's talked about how important reading and words and poetry and things like that were, but, and he, one of the things he used to tell his class was there, there's a guy who lived 200 years ago and I know exactly what he was thinking. Mm-hmm. And they're like, how Mr. Jack? Well, he wrote it down. <laughs> he wrote it down. Mm-hmm. And, um, so he was a, he was a big reader as well. So I've been inspired by, by that. Going forward. So between now and the next time I see you, yeah. what, uh, what would you like to accomplish in terms of your systems and your routines? Thinking about this after our last show, mm-hmm. and I didn't mention it during it. And I understand that a lot of what you do here is clearing away the debris mm. so that people can actually focus on their work. Right. The laptop itself is an impediment to writing. Mm. The laptop itself, open your freaking laptop. Any thought you've ever had, any email, any song, any poem, any half-finished project, any website, any piece of news of the day, any update on the submarine that sunk, everything on that laptop is an impediment to you actually doing the project. And so that continues to be a challenge for me because how the fuck else am I going to write this thing on a notepad? You know, like maybe I have to on a fucking typewriter. I have a couple old ones. You know? Do you? Yeah. A couple Corona, whatever the Corona Smiths. We should, we have a couple here at the process. Yeah. We should rent those out as like Dude. a high value. Like if you want to really get some shit done. Or what about just having a place with like, you know, 20 pretty good typewriters and some blank paper there and say, you can't come in with fucking anything other than a notepad of some notes. You're not bringing a laptop in here. You think Dostoevsky could have written crime and punishment on a fucking laptop? That's the, the pull line from this podcast. <laughs> or, or better yet, with an iPhone on his desk. Well, I'm with you. Can I, I, I'm reluctant to say this because it's, it's one of those things that uh, I'm being a little protective of this revelation I've had, which is wrong. But it's yeah, this contradicting what you just said. I know your it's idea is not fucking yeah. good, Paul. Say I know. It. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tell you the thing that I put together the other day. How much do you think is the 
2022 revenue of these four companies, Meta, which is the parent of Facebook and Instagram, Amazon, Apple, and Alphabet, which is the parent of Google. So their, their revenue for the year, yeah. those four companies, which I would argue is basically the, the things distracting us yeah, are exactly. basically from those four companies. Now there of course are other, but those are the four big ones. Right. So what do you think their yearly revenue was 2022 like combined combined revenue? 50 billion. 50 billion is your guess. The answer is $1.3 trillion. Wow. So, and that's just distractions. So, okay. Stay with me. How many people, well, I won't quiz you that <laughs> those four companies employ about 1.8 million people, mm. right? The largest army in the world is the Chinese army. It has a standing army of 2 million people. So equal in size, the largest military budget in the world is America's at 750 billion. Mm. So these four companies have access to double the resources that the most expensive military in the history of the world has Mm -hmm. and the number of people Mm. that the biggest army in the world has. And that's what you're up against every time you open that laptop. Yeah. Is that level that amount? Now that's not to say that they're, malevolent right but their money is derived from your attention from being able to send information at you which is keeping you from creating information right like you it it can't come in and go out at the same time so your point is a good one it seems small your laptop is just this piece of plastic and metal right that's sitting in front of you and you think to yourself well how could i can defeat this it's a tiny little two pound machine. But what's on the other side of that is 1.8 million people trying to figure out how to keep them in $1.3 trillion every year. And that's a lot to be up against, right? Yeah. And, and it may, I mean, when you put it like that, it's, it's, um, it adds another layer to it. I think that like for me, my laptop has so much crap on it, mm-hmm. including like everything I've ever, you know, all these half finished and ideas and poems and things. And I have one article that I really want to work on one. I know exactly where it is. Okay. And I have interest in it and it's halfway. I put down the first, I, I mean, it's already in motion. All I got to do is open the fucking file mm-hmm. and do it. I can't bring myself to do that. Or mm. at least not right. When I sit down, I have to do all this other crap and exhaust this, this loop of frivolous website checking and then zoning out on some stupid clickbait thing that pulls me in and looking at my email again. like, Oh, and then maybe I'll look at this one thing I wrote first to kind of get me warmed up for that. And, and it diverts my energy. And, you know, by the time I get there, I just, um, it's been frustrating for me, the lack of focus I have to stick with this one thing. And um, I just more and more feel like to do anything special, you have to create some sort of creative isolation, almost mm. even like never even looking something up. Like, mm. yeah, who cares if you get it wrong? Why do you have to have the information about this thing because it's someone else's information. So now you, you, you both have that thing now. Mm. Like what, can you actually have an original train of thought when you're using references on the internet? Probably not. I think that you're exactly right that for all of us, it's so tempting to take in information specifically because we are hardwired to love information in our past it made a lot of sense to get as much information as we could because it might've been the difference between your family surviving Mm. the tiger attack or not. Right. So we want 
we'd want desperately to take information in. It also was really scarce for a long time, right? Like there wasn't a lot of information around 20,000 years ago because it was mostly an oral tradition. We weren't writing stuff down. The internet was not beaming it into our heads. So in the same way that sugar kind of took us by surprise because historically <laughs> we didn't have access to like processed right. sugar. We just had fruits, right? right? information is really similar in that it has taken us by surprise and we're not at this point able to deal with it, which is why, I mean, it, it goes back to the rigidity that I have around creating these systems. It's not because I like being rigid. It's in fact, because I'm so prone to distraction that I have to do it. Like, it's just not an option. If, it's if like I, the alcoholic who can't take a drop but yeah, because they like know if, where yeah, they'll If I up. turn my phone on first thing in the morning, yeah. I know that I'm wrecked, right? Yeah, if yeah. I can leave it off until after I've done- How long do you leave it off? I usually have a list of four deep work tasks that I want to accomplish mm-hmm. before I will turn my phone on. So it's writing for the day. It's usually something to do with- You write before you ever turn your phone on? Yeah. Wow. Mostly because I can't do it any other way. It's yeah. not like I wish I could mm-hmm. turn on my phone and then come out of that state of mind. But as soon as I let the world in, I'm fucked. Yeah. yeah right. So yeah. even when I sit down, I've made it my habit that I don't go online when I start to write. Yeah. It's just go. And I've noticed that I will be tempted after I'm done writing before I move into the next. So today, for example, I was doing a little bit of web design for our, um, for the business's website. And I was tempted to go check my email. But what happens if I check my email is I start thinking about all those other things. Right. And all I really have to do if I'm working on web design stuff is 15 minutes. It's not that bad, mm-hmm. but it's just like you're saying, it's so available yep. to just go in and be like, oh, it won't hurt me. Yep. Yeah, it will. It will. <laughs> Unfortunately. And you're talking about the tiger attack. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, people are going to get fucking eaten by the tiger because they're wearing noise canceling headphones. <laughs> if there's a tiger coming down the street roaring right, and everyone around is screaming, tiger. <laughs> Mm-hmm. there's several people who still won't hear it. Right. And I think those people are a danger to society. The people who don't have their ears open to the moment, Paul mm-hmm. are a danger to there. There's a reason we have these things. Yeah. Okay. You see people with noise canceling headphones on a fucking scooter in traffic. Do you realize your ears are important when you're in traffic? <laughs> okay. The screech of the tires, the guy yelling, look out, the, right. whatever you're going to get yourself killed with those things on even down to honestly your balance. Because right? yeah. like so much of your balance is in your ears, right? Right. So like if you're not able to right. <laughs> process the change of pressure and all this other stuff, like, yeah, I'm of course with you on that. Okay. So back to the point at hand, what do you want to do in the next six weeks? What are you going to do to uh, mitigate this temptation? So here's the thing. I'm, I'm working on this article about Mike Shanahan. Okay. Right. And the Shanahan system that all these uh, coaches run and basically the success he had as a coach, like he's up for a hall of fame debate. I sat down with him last year. We got together and I started writing a little bit about us meeting up. And he said, Let, you know, let's get together again and watch some more film. We were watching film and just chatting ball, you know? And I wrote the first part of this article and it was kind of like, hey, I'm watching film with my old ball coach, an article, you know, I'm like, let's catch up with him and what, and I ask him some questions. And anyway, the way I could do it is, is schedule my second meet meeting with Mike. Mm. Hit him up and be like, hey, can we, you want to hang out and let's get a date on the books and keep this thing moving forward. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I, I want to finish this article because this one's going to lead into another one that I think um, could be good, and it could be a book idea too. This is like the thing. There's I have a bigger grand vision for what this could look like, but it takes 
throwing out this first 3000 word article and getting some bites on it. I, I already have a little bit of interest in it. I just got to shape it and put the rubber to the road. And that's what I plan on doing in the next six weeks. Okay. So the next six weeks, the, the main takeaway is you got to set up the date with Mike Shanahan. Yeah. So between now and the next time we see you, you're going to set up a date with Mike Shanahan. Yeah. Yeah. Great. It is also, you know, we talk a lot about building habits and routines, but there are also these obstacles that might face us that can um, help. So I've been thinking a lot about the nuisance that is social media mm-hmm. in my life, right? At what point w- am I going to just delete all of them? Mm-hmm. I think I'm still seduced by the idea that, oh, well, when we put out this podcast, I got to put it somewhere, right? I'm going to put it on Twitter. I'm going to put it on LinkedIn. I'm going to put it on Facebook and then people will be able to listen to it. And I guess I still don't know the answer mm-hmm. as to whether that's worth is the juice worth that squeeze? I don't know. Yeah, I think I think the answer is no. I think you probably are right. <laughs> for for the the mental energy it takes to think about it, from the time it takes to put it up and then engage with those mm-hmm. who respond, because social media is supposed to be about engagement. You put something out there, you're asking for a response, and then the person responds, and you being you know the guy you are, you want to give them something back, or at least, and and that takes time. And that takes you, you're talking about your mind being diverted by something, you know, and taken away from what you're actually focusing on. I think they've also done studies about how, like, for example, if you have 20,000 Twitter followers, is that going to, how many more books are you going to sell? Oh, I can tell you firsthand. It's not very many. Exactly. Like I think, so is it actually leading to money in your pockets? I think that's the grand illusion, right? Right. Like I've seen this with my brother who has whatever, 400,000 Instagram followers because of his really? charts. Wow. But when his book came out, you would have thought, I don't know, 1% of them will buy it. Right. Right. You would think 1% <laughs> is a pretty safe bet because right. it's also like, it's not like he does charts on Instagram and then he wrote a romance novel. Right. It was a book of charts. <laughs> so like, it's a pretty clear pathway. Right. right. And I don't, I'm not going to say the actual numbers, but it was not 4,000 people yeah. who bought it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At least not for a while. Yeah. And that most of the people who did buy it probably were through some other Avenue through a bookstore or whatever else. So it is like it, the grand illusion of social media is that it's going to allow us to amplify our message, yeah. really? but to what end? Right. I was thinking about this, doing this thing with my listeners, um, called the flip phone challenge. Mm. Okay. Flip phone challenges. It's a 15 week program. Okay. Each week we delete an app on our phone. Ooh. And at the end of the 15 weeks, we downgrade to a flip phone. Ooh. I like that. Obviously there's going to be some things you got to figure out. Yeah. About how you're going to live with a flip phone that doesn't have Uber on it. Mm-hmm. Or how you're going to live with a flip phone that doesn't have ultra clear camera caping, taking capabilities or the group chats that aren't as smooth or <laughs> What else though? What else do you need your, your iPhone for? Right. That's the thing that starts to collapse that uh, narrative is music. A true. Yeah. No, like look, look, get on MP3 again. I mean, right. I mean, you know, I have a CD player, right? I do too. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. And I love having it because it makes me, yeah, it makes me, I went out and bought, a CD player and a receiver specifically yeah. for this reason. I asked it for a CD player for my It's hard to find a CD yeah. player. Yeah. But I have a ton of CDs still, man. Right. Yeah. And it is amazing how little attention I pay to music on Spotify mm-hmm. because it's so disposable. Yeah. Right. Whereas if yeah. I put a CD in or a record on, right. I'm like, okay, I better pay attention to, yeah. to what 
Chester Bennington. Yeah. The Lincoln Park guy. All right. So between now and then, you're going to set up that meeting with Mike Shanahan. Cool. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing the story. The last ever. The last ever process podcast before it becomes the Art of Knowledge Work podcast. Hasta la vista, baby. Hey friends, Paul here. I really appreciate you listening. The executive producer of the Process Podcast is Rich Burner. Music came to us courtesy of Kevin McLeod at incompetech.filmmusic.io. I'll talk to you again soon.